white, a blank show, or podcast. The challenge to bring content to the handful of listeners through design. Composition, tone, form, symmetry, balance, light, and harmony. Hi, welcome to Sondheim on Adderall. Um, I took a week off. I didn't release an episode last week. Not only because I developed a massive fever after my nasal polyps uh, diagnosis, I ended up getting this bacterial infection that was like strep throat, but not strep throat, but just as unpleasant. But also, um, on top of all of that, I had a loss of faith in this whole project, I'll be honest with you. So, um, let, to recap, why do I do this? Why do I uh, spend time talking into a microphone in my study in Van Nuys to uh, little to no uh, audience? The, this is something an insane person would do. Well, so let me recap. I, I did a little primer on this in the first episode. Uh, I have ADHD. I take Adderall, which makes me talk a lot. It's supposed to make me focus, but instead of focusing on what I'm supposed to focus on, uh, which in my case is schoolwork, uh, finishing my undergraduate degree, uh, it makes me uh, focus on what I naturally want to focus on, and that is the work of Stephen Sondheim, which is right where I left off in high school. I was really into Sondheim musicals in high school, and I, I would sit in class taking ADHD medication and not listening to the teacher, but casting Sondheim shows with uh, either famous actors or people I went to high school with. Or doing the Hunter S. Thompson, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald thing, where I would just like write out the lyrics to Sondheim songs uh, and just see what it felt like to write them down as if I wrote them. Weird, uh, weird kid. So um, when I talk to people that have the same interest, this same interest, Sondheim musicals, I feel like I'm never on the same page with them, and I get frustrated. And uh, I thought that it might be worth it to occupy a niche podcast space where I would integrate my vast and arguably useless knowledge of Sondheim musicals uh, from uh, biographies and coffee table books that I read in my youth with whatever my personal vibe or aesthetic is that makes me not fit in with theater people I've come across, um, who are the ones that are usually talking about this stuff. Theater people, Broadway theater people, actors, and the theater community. So, um, you know, I've made it up to Sunday in the Park with George, which is a huge one. And here's what happened. I listened to another more mainstream, <laughs> far more mainstream uh, Sondheim podcast on this one. And I began to realize or, that maybe my mission statement here is a little arrogant. <laughs> and I felt embarrassed because this podcast had a lot of the same takes that I had. And uh, what if my podcast here is just built on hate and cliches? Like, what if we're not all that different? What if I'm not all that special? I'm not all that original? And that my thoughts and takes on these things are the same as everybody's. Because I think I had this image in my mind of the categories of people who like to talk about Stephen Sondheim-related things. And, you know, one of these is uh, the image of, like, the season ticket holder, right? The upper-middle-class cocktail party person uh, they probably they live in Santa Monica, certainly if they're on the West Coast. Uh, they watch MSNBC. They put liberal signs on their lawns about uh, how immigrants are welcome, and then they have zero non-white friends. They worry over rising crime. 
this is a ugly cliche, <laughs> but it's one in my mind um, when I think about the people that talk about Sondheim. Now, this is a made-up person. It's not actually as novel or impossible to like Sondheim and not be this person. Yeah, of course it's not impossible, because Sondheim is good. So people that like things that are good are likely to like it. So um, the fact that I have some pretty potent feelings about Sunday in the Park with George, and when I listen to this podcast full of uh, the, what I uh, perceive to be the MSNBC season ticket holder archetype of person, I was embarrassed because they said a lot of the things that I thought, and I said, "Well, I this is I'm I'm uh, I'm nobody. What's the point of this?" Now I should tell you something. My embarrassment was cured when I masochistically went on to listen to the Merrily We Roll Along episode of the same podcast, and they were so fucking wrong that I was like, okay, good. This is not uh, the emergency that I thought it was. And I bet you there's more than two <laughs> Sondheim podcasts. There's more than just this one that nobody's heard of, and that one that is the most flashy one when you Google it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing some pretty uh, bold lines here, and I'm a dick and a hypocrite. But, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep talking because why not? Feel free to not listen. Anyway, for Christ's sake, uh, let's talk about this week's show already because the intro... Oh, let me say one thing really quick. In my week off while I was recovering from this illness, which I'm hopefully... Jesus Christ, I hope I'm fully recovered from. I thought I was before. I thought I was out of the woods and then it got so, so much worse. I made a Spotify playlist of my favorite Sondheim songs. And I will link to it uh, in the show notes here. If you look below the, you know, whatever it is, the quote of the week... If you are a uh, Spotify subscriber, enjoy. And if you're not, I think you could probably still click on it and see the list, what it is. And then you can replicate it song by song on your Apple Music or wherever, the, wherever you get your music. Or you could just look it over and say, yeah, very good, and move on with your life. That's also an option. This week's show, ladies and gentlemen, is Sunday in the Park with George. Now, let me say something. My answer, if someone were to ask me over the years, what is your favorite Sondheim musical? The answer has changed a few times, right? I would say when I was a kid kid, Into the Woods is my favorite musical and uh, that would be my answer. Then of course, West Side Story. Then of course, Sweeney Todd, when I hear that and I'm a young man. Um, then, I, as I become a, someone in my 20s, uh, maybe Assassins is going to be my answer, you know? Uh, because that's sort of the closest to, like, a, a, a gritty uh, Tarantino or Scorsese type thing that a 20-year-old might be into. Um, and then for a long time, Merrily We Roll Along has been my answer. Because... Uh, it's so good, and I talked all about it in the last episode, if you're interested, and if you're not, that's also fine. But uh, th this is the show that comes directly after Merrily We Roll Along. It marks a seismic shift in Sondheim's career. And I gotta tell you something, I think maybe since Sondheim's death, I don't want to make any bold claims here, I think my favorite may have changed, and it may be Sunday in the Park with George. Now, Merrily We Roll Along, like, I know exactly what that means to me. 
Like, I know why I love that one. I have no idea what Sunday in the Park with George means to me, but it means so much to me. And I feel hesitant to even do a podcast on it because the value of this musical is indefinable to me in a way that I enjoy. And I don't really even particularly want to tease it out. It's like, uh, I'm, you know, I've, I'm 15 years sober. And I go to an uh, anonymous program that I won't tell you the name of. Uh, uh, but you, you get where I'm going. So they, uh, th- This program has a book and a chapter called How It Works. And, you know, if it doesn't work for you, fine. A salute. It worked for me. Um, but crucially, and this has been said in a few meetings I've been to, like, it's not called Why It Works. It's called How It Works. There's some sort of alchemy to this anonymous program that I don't understand as a mere mortal, uh, and I don't need to understand. And in fact, if I try to intellectualize it and understand it, it may take away some of the power of it. And I feel that way about Sunday in the Park with George. And I think the reason it's so potent to me now is because in my late 30s, I'm sort of coming to a new understanding of, I even hate to say this out loud, what it is to be an artist and um, who can or should say they are one. Are you an artist because you say you are? You know, what kind of asshole would ever say art isn't easy out loud and expect to be taken seriously, even if they were you know, an unimpeachably great artist. I've never called myself an artist. I've always felt weird about that. Um, I, you know, the first stuff I was doing was acting when I was younger. And I thought that actors who called themselves artists were full of shit. I'm sorry. I did. I, I and I, I, I think I'm wrong about that. I could very well be wrong. It, you know, what's a craft? What's an art? Who cares if you if you feel like you're making art, then you're making art. If it's scratching whatever itch you have, who cares? Why draw these lines? But I never called myself one. Okay? I just didn't. Um, I started playing music on the piano. I started writing music. And same. Like, I, I, I consider those to be crafts. And maybe part of the reason I didn't consider them to be art was because of Stephen Sondheim and the stuff that he said about people like me in the way that we wrote quote-unquote music like I wouldn't even he I don't think he would even call it music if you're writing uh, in terms of chord progressions which is what I was doing and what I still do um, I didn't transcribe my music I know how to now and I enjoy actually the meditative process of transcribing music into sheet music but I would not like sit there like fucking Mozart at the end of Amadeus and just hear something in my head and then scribble it onto a page. Like, I'm a humble tunesmith. I am Julie Stein. I'm practicing my craft. This is this was my thinking, right? Now, I'm going to say something out loud on this podcast, uh, and this is primarily for the sake of my own therapeutic development, so bear with me here. I am an artist. That's the one and only time I'll say it. And the funny thing is, you know, nobody wants to hear 
what it feels like to be an artist. It's kind of like hearing somebody talk about what their orgasm feels like. Like, my orgasm is very interesting to me, and your orgasm is not interesting at all. Like, I want to see what you got. I want to see the, uh, oh, I'm, I'm going to stop using this analogy for this, but like, I, I the, the work of art I'm interested in, but hearing about the life of an artist, I don't know, um, especially when it's spoken about in those terms of uh, high art as opposed to low art, what that, whatever that even means anymore in the postmodern era. Hmm. Now, I'm an artist, but I'll tell you something, I am not an artist in the way that George is an artist. I don't know about the real George Seurat, that's not my business. Um, I'm talking about George in this musical, as imagined by Sondheim and Lapine. I've seen Georges before, like I've been in proximity to them. Growing up in Los Angeles as a kid trying to be an actor, like I, or like a kid in drama classes. I went, on, I went on a few commercial auditions in middle school and I hated it so much. But I was in drama classes in school, and if you live in LA and you're in drama or theater classes, from time to time, someone will have a Hollywood agent come in and talk to the kids, and it's always pretty rough. And one thing that they would always say, or even like reading, you know, reading Disney's Adventure Magazine, I remember there was an interview with the cast of the new Brady Bunch movie in the 90s, and a couple of them said, like, advice to get, don't get into show business or become a working actor unless you can't imagine ever doing anything else. This is pretty common advice for young actors. And I heard this advice, and I took it to heart, like when the agents came to the school or in that Disney Adventure magazine, and I said, huh, I mean, I I should, okay, I, I think I could be like a teacher or something. I could I could think of other things to do. I don't need to be an actor, because if, if, if it's that important to not do it unless you can't imagine, I can imagine doing other things. Crucially, I never did any other things. I should tell you that. Um, I'm... 39 years old, and I'm becoming a teacher now, will be in a year and a half, heaven willing. But uh, I, when I made that decision, like, okay, point taken, I don't need to do this. And it was similar with music, like writing music, being in bands. It was important to me, but it was not the only important thing to me. I had a friend named Kenny, who uh, I haven't talked to him in a while, and I think he moved out of state, but he was he seemed like an artist in a George kind of way. I would observe him with an eight track, recording a song, writing a song, and it was a lot like it was. he was finishing the hat, and it looked like a painful thing. He would spend hours at it. And I can relate to this on some level, but I actually can't stand doing it. And I am able to step back from it. And I don't know if that just means I'm a shitty artist, <laughs> or just a... I don't know, but it's complicated because here's, I like looking at the hat that I made, but I don't like finishing the hat. I like the look I made a hat section. Uh, I, I wish that I could fast forward to the thing having been made, you know, but what complicates this is the fact that one thing I have learned that if I don't make things, I become squirrely and I become awful. If I don't sit at the piano for a couple of weeks, it's, it's an unconscious thing, and I don't notice it right away, but things get fucked up in my brain and in my life. 
So yeah, uh, Sunday in the Park with George. <laughs> we, we've been going off of the Finishing the Hat book here, and we actually have graduated to the second book, Look, I Made a Hat, because uh, the first hat book goes up to 1981, and this book starts in 1981, 1982, with the Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, so interestingly enough, you know, after I made all these notes and pondered this, I went through that book. And at the beginning, before he's even talking about this particular show, Sondheim defines art, and he says it is edited truth. Art is truth, uh, edited, uh, quote, edited to give it shape, rhythm, speed, and punch. I've quoted the communist dictum before, if it isn't art, it isn't propaganda. Art is skill in the service of passion. That's what Sondheim says. So, Conrad Sondheim's latent communism aside Sunday in the Park with George is not the most accessible show you gotta meet it halfway and it was my least favorite when I was a preteen because I was obviously not ready for it you know because you're not ready for that as a preteen and I would have told you to go fuck yourself if you would have said that to me because people had said that to me about other things but I was clearly not ready, and I put it on the Sondheim suck list with um, passion and anyone can whistle. Which, you know, let's face it, maybe I just wasn't ready for those either. Like, maybe if I, maybe in uh, 20 to 30 more years, if I am still alive and there hasn't been a climate apocalypse, I'll listen to passion and I'll be like, oh, I get it. You know, it's happened to me with other mediums before. It happened to me with uh, the, the Wilco album, uh, Sky Blue Sky. I was like, ah, oh, they lost it. They, they don't have it anymore. And then I needed to live a little bit of life. And then I came back and listened to it. And hey, it's actually the best one. You just have to grow up a little bit to appreciate it. I think that I assumed it's because I didn't understand visual art. That I didn't understand the show and I didn't like it. I learned actually pretty late in life, pretty recently, that I do like visual art. But in order to like it, I need to go to an art gallery all by myself. That is all there is to it. I need to not go with other people and think about um, what it means to them or how are we standing too long in front of this one and what time are we going to have lunch and my feet hurt. It has to be just a completely solitary experience for me to really get it. And I've done that a few times now and I locked in for the first time and I was like, oh, yes. I'm not a complete fucking Philistine asshole. I can look at paintings and like them. So hooray for me, is what I'm saying. Clive Barnes in the New York Post, when Sunday in the Park with George came out, he kind of had a similar opinion to the one that 13-year-old Chris Kevin had. Oops, that's my last name. Have I ever told you guys my last name? Should I, should I bleep that out? Who cares? Whatever. Uh, he said uh, in his review... In the New York Post, the difficulty with the show is that despite the almost Superman efforts of its two splendid stars, it simply doesn't sing. When all is said and sung, the spectacle appreciated and the performances admired, it might be better to go to the park with anyone than to spend it boringly in the theater with George. And that was the thing. I thought it was boring. Now, I read the script first before I listened to it. I was bored by it. I didn't finish it. I looked at the pictures, very intrigued by the pictures, the visual, obviously it's about a painting and there's all these little cutouts and things and 
Yeah, I decided what it was about based on the pictures because I couldn't be bothered to finish the uh, the book, reading the book. Now, I'm going to tell you one more time, and I, I've this has happened a few times in me recounting my autobiographical experience of Sondheim shows, which I imagine that half of my audience is uh, very bored with when I do it, but I keep doing it anyway because half of my, you know, this is my podcast. Leave me the fuck alone. Let me talk about what I want to talk about. Um. When you're getting into uh, Sondheim at the age of 13 and uh, you're emerging into puberty for the first time, uh, you're going to be aroused by the certain things like uh, Frida and the tall grass scene, which, yeah, to me, I, I mean, just stage direction, he places, she places his hand on her breast. That was like a, you know, softcore penthouse story for me. That, that <laughs> you know, it's like, and just as a side note on this, weird topic bear with me for a second so in the this coincided with the early days of the internet where um there was sondheim.com is a place where i spent a lot of time and there was a message board if you guys remember message boards before proper social media it was called finishing the chat i wish that the like the archive of that was still up somewhere so i could wade through the posts from the 90s and see this go down i (laughs) this is so embarrassing um, and I, this is, I'm so mortified by this, but I'm going to say it out loud because, uh, you're only as sick as your secrets. I keep in mind, I'm 13 years old. <laughs> I went on finishing the chat and I started a topic asking if there were any <laughs> girls between the age of like 12 and 15 that liked Sondheim that wanted to chat with me. <laughs> and I don't, I did not say that I was 13. I just, it was a call for, uh, I want to talk privately with Sondheim fans that are female and between the age of 12 and 15. So, as you can imagine, the, I got a negative response to that. Several negative replies. And I was so upset by them that I was being accused of being a pederast <laughs> as a 13-year-old. And what made matters even worse was, for re- for some reason, um, I had a shared email address with my family. Like, we all shared an email address. I don't know if, I don't remember if email addresses cost money back then. But, so, all of the, all of this correspondence that came in uh, was read by all of my family. Like, all of the responses to this and then my responses to other people. Like, my, my, my mom and dad read them. And, uh... Anyway, that was weird. So anyway, the soundtrack. (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to cut this out or not. Who cares? Nobody's fucking listening. I listened to the soundtrack of Sunday in the Park with George. I was like, okay, yeah, this is boring. I announced to my sister or whoever that would listen to me that the only good song on it was It's Hot Up Here. Because that's what I thought was the truth. That uh, that was the only good song. It seemed to me uh, at my young age, and maybe a little bit later even, that Mandy Patinkin was being misused in this, like underutilized, like the like you know like how you you make the Blues Brothers with um, John Belushi and you cover his eyes with sunglasses. It's like that's the whole thing. Is you know why isn't Mandy doing the uh, the crazy Mandy thing? He's just sitting there muttering, what the fuck? Or Bill Murray and Broken Flowers, a movie that I did not understand and probably still don't understand 
I can't be bothered to go back and see if I do. But it's like, no, where's Bill Murray? He's done. He's not being funny. He's just sitting there. And so since there's there's a little bit of Mandy doing his manic fucking thing in this, but not as much. So I was, it seems it's uh, it seemed like a waste to me at the time. So uh, one day in high school, I don't know how or why the song "Finishing the Hat" gets through to me. And I realized that it's an amazing, beautiful song. And uh, it is. Finishing the Hat. Maybe my favorite Sondheim song. It's on that playlist, I'll tell you that much. Now, so, uh, you know, eventually I, I concede, okay, so I, as an adult, Sun in the Park with George is really good. And uh, it's really, uh, it's elevated uh, the form, uh, blah, blah, blah. It's really good. And I'm like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. Then Sondheim dies, 2021. And I, you know, we all expected Sondheim would die eventually. He was over 90. I always kind of wished there'd be one more, and there wasn't one. And I was kind of grieving, to be honest with you. And I watched it. I watched... The uh, what, which by the way, the best entry point for this would be the video, the filmed play version with the original cast. And when I watched this after Sondheim's death, I, I locked in and I got it on a level that I didn't get it before, and, and I keep talking about like times that I've cried on here, and I I realize that it's kind of uh, self-indulgent. Like I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm so I'm such a sensitive male for all the times that I'm crying. It's really just because I'm amazed at it because something happened to me in the last few years as I approached the age of forty, where I moved to tears by works of art where I wasn't before. And I, this is not just a sniffle. Sniffle watching after Sondheim's death, watching the the video. Sunday at the Park with George, the, the Act 1 finale, it is full-on bawling, ugly crying. And uh, very unexpected. Didn't know it was going to happen. Couldn't believe it was happening when it happened, but it happened. And I here's the thing. I don't really know why. And I don't want to know why. That song, Sunday. We'll talk about it when we get into the show itself here. Jack Kroll in Newsweek, um, sorry, Newsweek, he said, and this is what, you know, in contrast with the Clive Barnes review that I read earlier that mirrored my feelings on it when I was younger, because Clive Barnes apparently has the mind of 13-year-old Chris, uh, but Jack Kroll in Newsweek, he said, Sondheim's score is original even for him. The new collaboration with Lapine may be a promise of exciting things to come. To say that this show breaks new ground is not enough. It also breaks new sky, new water, new flesh, and new spirit. That harmless-sounding title masks more daring and surprise than the American musical stage has seen in a long time. And that's true. There's being... So, these are my words now, not Jack Curls anymore. There's a lot being asked of you to potentially love this show... I think audiences have caught up a little bit since the early 80s. It requires some patience. It requires you to not expect natural story beats. And I don't want to say that I'm this refined person that can let works of art wash over me and not have a dismissive, judgmental idea of what they are in advance. I do that all the time. I did that with this. I mean, I was younger, so I could maybe be a little bit forgiven, but I constantly do that. There are things... 
I feel like maybe there's a part of me that if I was a little bit more patient might love the movie The Tree of Life, the Terrence Malick film. But when I saw that in theaters in 2011, I was sitting there just saying, fuck this movie. I don't have the time or the energy to crawl into it and meet it halfway. And fair enough. If you really just want uh, Desert Island guilty pleasures, what? Or guilty pleasures, like if, that, if that, that's a totally, totally okay way to be. <laughs> you don't need me to tell you that. You really don't. Um, but there are people, and maybe it's because, you know, most of the stuff I've done in my life has been kind of trivial. My, my non-artistic life, I mean, it's been... You know, I've worked in children's theater and I work as a waiter in a restaurant. And so maybe when I cut loose, I want to see something really upsetting and challenging. And maybe if you're doing something of substance and you're giving of yourself and you're doing something altruistic every day, maybe you want to cut loose with a nice reality show or something funny. And that's okay. It really is okay. I saw a production of Sunday in the Park with George let's call it one month ago, a month and a half ago, at the Pastina Playhouse. Oh, heads up, I'm going there tonight to see a little night music. It's uh, Thursday, April 27th. I'm going to go see it with my long-suffering girlfriend, uh, who's been along a ride with me through uh, Sondheim Rewatch, and God bless her, this uh, little night music is a lot to ask for. Anyway, um, so, I that was the first time I'd seen anybody but Mandy and Bernadette uh, do it, and I could never imagine anyone else doing it. First of all, just because they're incredible performers, they're top-tier singers and actors, I think, but also they are such specific people. You can't really put them in a category. They kind of transcend category, both of them, Bernadette Peters and Mandy Patinkin. And it was interesting seeing it, it was interesting seeing somebody play Dot who was just like a young woman. It changed my perception of it, actually. Because Bernadette Peters is like a force and an earth mother. She's, there's something really large about her in her voice and in her vibe and her spirit and the way that she looks. And Mandy Patinkin has a voice that people imitate. Uh, this guy actually imitated it. Um, but it, that is really just his own. He has a wide tessitura, which is what Sondheim said and made me learn the word tessitura um, in the Craig Zayden book. Well, which is it's it's your essentially your range, the comfortability within your range. Uh, top, he can go way up and go way down. And actually, if you listen to the album and then watch the video, there's a big difference in the way that he sings uh, and speaks. Like on the album, he'll be like, "White, a blank page or can," and then on the video, he's like, "White, a blank page or canvas." Um, you know, he's got a working two octave range. Whatever, great, good job, Mandy Patinkin. Uh, everybody loves you, uh, except Mandy Patinkin is apparently a nightmare of a person, and uh, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, we're going to talk about the themes of Sunday in the Park with George. And uh, I haven't talked much about the whole process here yet of putting it up. Um, but anyway, so I think, that, and this is a theory, I think that this is musical theater for non-musical theater people. James Lapine is a non he was not really a musical theater Broadway person he was an off-Broadway avant-garde theater person I want to force everybody to watch this <laughs> or I want to force 
serious artists that say that musicals are bad uh, to watch this and see what can be possible in a musical. I get the sense that, and you know, just from what I get, serious like like a visual artist, like or, or let's say someone that loves this painting. Um, I think that they assume that this musical is can't be bullshit, and you know, people that love musicals, they think this musical is too uh, ponderous and boring. So it's caught between two worlds, I think. Or at least it was. I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I am not this lone voice that loves Sunday in the Park with George, okay? Everybody loves it, and they should. It's really good. But the criticism of it initially, and now, is that it's the same criticism of George Surratt. It's that it's got no presence, no passion, no life. And it's so brilliant the way that the music and the dialogue are just in sync with this painting and Sondheim gets criticized a lot of being over intellectualized with no heart and that's because you're not looking closely enough at it just like the people that were not looking closely enough at this fucking painting there's a similar um, criticism of Stanley Kubrick films. I think you, uh, Pauline Kael, her review of 2001, The Space Odyssey, which t took me a while. Honestly, that was the one I was like, I don't have the patience for this. I like talky things, and this is too visual. You know what I had to do to appreciate that movie? I had to shut the fuck up and watch it. And then I got it. Because I shut the fuck up, and I just sat back and watched it. It's that simple. It's a movie where a fucking humans die like machines and machines die like humans but it looks like just sort of a cold um technocratic thing technical technocratic technical stuff and that's what this painting looks like you are a, a, a painter not a scientist <sighs> sometime quote uh he says the more i found out about him george Surratt, the more i realized my god this is all about music Surratt experimented with the color wheel the way that one experiments with a scale. He used complementary color exactly the way one uses dominant and tonic harmony. And that, that kind of brings into focus the use of the word harmony in this, right? Where he, the tone, form, symmetry, the, the last one is harmony. Surratt and Sondheim are doing the same fucking thing, which is why their work is perceived as needlessly complicated at first glance, because there are layers that require something of the viewer or the listener or the uh, the audience. They're tasked with interpreting. Your eye made the violet. <laughs> the two colors. But it requires you to stand back. If you don't stand back, it just looks like fucking dots. But it's more than dots. Ah, oh, my God. I love it so much. But here's the thing, I'm not uh, original in saying this because after I, you know, uh, Frank Rich in the New York Times when it came out, Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine demand that an audience radically change their whole way of looking at the Broadway musical. Look closely at that canvas or at Sunday in the Park, with George, uh, Sunday in the Park itself and you'll get lost in a sea of floating dots. Stand back and you'll see that this evening's two theater artists, Mr. Sondheim and Mr. Lapine, have woven all of those imaginative possibilities into a finished picture with a startling new glow. It's not about each dot, motherfuckers. It's about that dot and this dot and the harmony 
harmony that they create. But we need you to make that into harmony. Otherwise, it's just dots. Can you do that? You assholes. You just want to see a 42nd Street revival, don't you? You don't want to sit there and... Uh... Anyway, like I said, that's fine if you don't want to do that. New York Times really got behind the show, which is kind of rare. And, and that, apparently they kept it running. They, they, they had bad reviews from nearly everywhere else. But New York Times kept doing articles about it. And here's a mistake that you can make. And I've made the mistake myself, I think, uh, in my middle period of liking this show <laughs> or coming to like it. It seems like it's a story about an artist and a muse, the Georgian Dot thing. It's not. Like, and so Dot is not this sacrificing woman that is tasked with inspiring the artist, George, right? She is not an invisibilized, uh, you know, she is the art. It's the art and the artist. And there's something in Dot that is expansive and beautiful and transcendent and not just beautiful in the way that we think about, you know, pretty women, you know, be my model for this painting. George is transcribing Dot. Dot has as much to do with that painting as George does. I'm getting all upset here. I don't know why. Um, the thing about the story of this musical is that one thing happens, really, in it. At least in the first act. Like, the whole... It's not even at the beginning. It's like the second or third scene. There's one event, which is... George is supposed to take Dot to the Follies. She gets ready to go. And he doesn't take her because he has to finish the hat. And then everything else is orbiting around that. And you want to, oh man, it's hard to it's hard to watch when you think of it in that sense. When he says it, and when he doesn't go after her, and he says, "Well, red," it's it's uh, it, it sets off a, a sequence of events that uh, is so painful. People don't like Act Two of this show. Act Two is important because it's about selling, right? So George is the second George. And if you don't know, well, you know. I'm going to assume everybody knows what happens in this show. Otherwise, you are so bored by all of this, and you shouldn't—you would not still be listening. So, second George in Act Two, he's surrounded and distracted by all this shit that is uh, surrounding the making of art, and he's losing touch with the art itself. But here's the problem, and I think that this is maybe a mistake, like the one fatal flaw of Act Two is that it's hard for people to latch on to Second George and equate him on any level with the First George because his art is lasers. He's doing lasers. Now, if you're an artist that makes art with lasers, more power to you. I'm sorry, it, it feels unserious. Maybe it felt more serious in the 80s, but I wonder if it would be different if, first of all, he wasn't making art with lasers. We just knew him to be an artist, and we never saw his work. But... It was established that he was a great artist and his art was great. It's hard to really... You have to sort of just suspend your disbelief because we see a laser show on stage which does not feel... After we've seen this grand fucking, like, artistic feat of making the Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jatte in the first act, then we see this laser show and it's like... It's, it feels like a joke. 
Which is funny because the original concept was that George would be a performance artist and it was supposed to be a comical, but they changed it because they were worried he would look like a fool. He, it still kind of does seem foolish. I'm sorry that he does the laser art. It's kind of a side theme, but the whole theme of Louis, and everybody loves Louis. You know, it's easy just to think that that's like a story point. Okay, she leaves him for a baker. and But Everybody Lo Loves Louis is an important song because it's kind of, it's sung by Dot, and it's her ambivalence of, okay, I'm, I have a choice between this difficult, impossible man that I love and this friendly baker that everybody else loves. Um, and here's the thing, everybody probably doesn't love Louis. It just seems that way to her and to George. And he needs to occupy that space for it to be the ultimate betrayal, to leave him for a Louis, for a baker. And Jesus Christ, Louis's thoughts are not hard to follow. Louis's art is not hard to swallow. That is the first time that I got choked up mysteriously. Um, when I saw the the Pasadena Playhouse thing last month. And I don't know, again, I don't know why. It's mysterious to me. If it's hysterical, it's historical. So what does that mean about me? That that like, I feel like it's just because it's so good. It was the same thing where I cried to hear, uh, watching Moments in the Woods on my birthday. It's like, I'm crying at the fact that this is so good. And he's dead. So there's a great book that came out last year, two years, let's call it two years ago, because that's the actual year it came out. That's why we'll call it that. It's called Putting It Together, How Stephen Sondheim and I Made Sunday in the Park with George. It's an oral history of the show uh, put together by James Lapine. I enjoyed reading it. I would have uh, shit myself reading it when I was a teenager. Um, so I'm going off of that book now. I'm also going off of Look, I Made a Hat, the second in the Hat series, and our old pal Craig Zayden, which is uh, you know the book I read 700 times growing up. Um, so the, the mythology is, this is after Merrily, we roll along, it's a big flop, Sondheim wants to quit. He wants to start writing mystery novels. Then he goes and sees a play called Twelve Dreams, which is some avant-garde theater, and it was made by a young gentleman named James Lapine. And I'll tell you something, I, uh, I, I, I don't know anything about Twelve Dreams, and I don't know... That's a broad way of saying it, avant-garde theater. I tend to feel hostile towards avant-garde theater. But uh, maybe it's it can also be good. But he also did March of the Falsettos. Part of the Falsettos, is it a trilogy? Are there three of them? feels like there's more than three. They, they lumped them all together into one thing called, I think just called Falsettos, right? Because there was in in trousers march of the falsettos and then falsetto land anyway it's all one show now and march of the falsettos is kind of the best uh, i think but it, it reads very weird now and i don't know if it's just because of aging and the context of the time but like i i think i feel like it's a great show in the context of the time it was written william finn who wrote the music and lyrics he's oddball just in the way that he phrases things it's like who would think or talk that way but it doesn't feel bad in a like incompetent sense it's just huh weird who would ever say that i guess william finn would and therefore these characters would james lapine doesn't necessarily like musicals uh the first one that he ever sees on broadway is sweeney todd which is weird but uh we starts talking to sondheim sondheim makes him tapes of his oh, of his past work which is adorable lapine falls in love with it he regrets never seeing them on broadway 
By the way, this is my dream. I want to uh, send this playlist uh, to uh, somebody you, that you know that hates musicals and see if you can get them to like musicals. Or don't. Let them keep living their lives. It's not my business to make everyone like musicals. I need to remind myself of that from time to time. Lapine's like a photographer designer. He sort of fell backwards into theater. He started late. He's way more into physical and visual theater. He's not that into the text. So he starts meeting with Sondheim in around 1982. He goes over to Sondheim's place. The original idea is that they're going to adapt a book called A Cool Million by Nathaniel West, which is weird because I just read Nathaniel West for the first time in my American literature class. I read uh, the, the Day of the Locust, and boy, is that a great book. I have not read A Cool Million. But they decide not to, or Sondheim decides he does not want to adapt it because he said this is too close to Candide, which is already a musical slash opera that Bernstein and a bunch of other motherfuckers did. So they start just hanging out and, well, we should collaborate, though. And, okay, here's the bombshell of this new book, this Lapine book. They smoke pot the first time that they meet up. At Sondheim, so at Sondheim's house, he's like, hi, hi, nice to meet you. Have a seat. Sondheim lights a joint and he passes it to Lapine. And they're talking to each other in this, like it's an oral, it's like a, a transcribed interview in this book. And Lapine says, yeah, you handed me weed, and I thought that was weird, but I appreciated it. And then Sondheim says, quote, I just figured that anybody of your generation smoked dope all the time, which was true. <laughs> so yeah, if I would have read that in high school, I would have, my dick would have fell off. That's, uh, that's insane to me. That, uh... I don't know what to do with that information, that Sondheim has pot in his house and smokes it and uh, hands it over to collaborators when they meet up. And that he calls it dope. What the f What's happening here? So they start meeting. They have a difference in, of approach. Sondheim says, oh, what should we adapt? Uh, I like these movies and I like these books. Because that's how he works, as we have learned. He uh, said, oh, I could adapt this. I could see how this could be adapted. Lapine, this frou-frou, uh, uh, arty, farty guy, he's like, uh, well, why don't we look at some pictures and see if any of them inspire us? So he takes out some pictures, they start chatting, eventually they take out paintings and then uh, pictures of uh, postcards of paintings. Maybe they're not postcards. Um, but they start saying, he says, uh, have you ever, what do you think about uh, Sunday Afternoon on the, the Island of La Grande Jatte by George Surratt? And they look at it and it looks like a play. If you've uh, seen that painting, which of course you have, um, it's in the Art Institute of Chicago. It's hanging there. Uh, Ferris Bueller and his buddy uh, went and stared at it. So there's like, oh, maybe this one's in love with that one, and this one has a secret from that one. They're looking at the painting. They're like, oh, we can make a play out of this. That's cool. And then James Lapine says, oh, but of course the lead character is missing. And then Sondheim says, who's that? And James Lapine says, the artist. Kaboom! And then that's that's the oft-told story of how they had the idea for writing this thing. Now, the whole idea of all of the characters in the painting and their stories, um, that still survives in the show, but I think it got uh, minimized in favor of the George and Dot stuff. Like, there are a lot of little vignettes, the Sunday sections with the soldier and the girl and Franz and Frida and the nurse and the old lady. Um, those were, a lot of those were longer and they cut them down because they found out in the workshop process, because they did do a workshop of this, that people were, that, that it was more interesting to focus on George and Dot. Now, 
Let me tell you something, folks. And I've alluded to this before. I've got some severe throat problems this month. And so when I read today in Craig Zayden's Sondheim and Company, uh, a brief sort of biography of the real George Surratt. And I learned that George Surratt got a really bad sore throat and choked to death. I was like, what? Are you fucking... Are you kidding me? Are you fucking with me? And his child also died of a sore throat like a couple weeks later. I've got a sore throat that hasn't gone away for a month. It's fucking weird and scary. Anyway, it's not that big of a coincidence, but it upset me when I read that today. My throat's feeling better, though. Um, knock on wood. It felt good. Anyway, so um, George Surratt led a double life. Uh, to a, he had this mistress, uh, this dot-like mistress that he had a child with, but then he also like he went to his mom's house every night for dinner, and after he died, his mom found out that he had had this mistress and this baby. She never knew about it. The baby that died of a sore fucking throat. So James Lapine writes the first act. He keeps and his his thing is like he writes things and he throws shit out there. Sondheim does his usual slow roll where he hems and haws and fidgets. Everyone's nervous as hell because like Sondheim, can you write some fucking songs? We can do a musical. We got everything else going here. And Sondheim's like, oh, I need to get more of my black wing pencils and sharpen them, and I need to lie down and do a puzzle first. That's exactly what he said, by the way. Um. That's how wow, what I imagine he said. They do um, a, they, they, they do a like I said a workshop at Playwrights Horizons, which is an off-Broadway nonprofit. I did something at Playwrights Horizons a few years ago, and I felt I was like, oh my god, this is hollowed ground. I was in New York City. I had written a one-act musical that was part of a festival uh, that made it to the finals of this festival of one-act uh, ten-minute musicals, and just being there, thinking about it. Um, was like uh, more uh, meaningful to me than being in the fucking Sistine Chapel. This is Sondheim's first time outside of Broadway. As we have learned, this motherfucker at the age of 27 is doing West Side Story with these uh, masters on Broadway. When they start rehearsals, James Lapine, he's the writer of the book and the director, he's having all of the actors do theater games and exercises, <laughs> which uh, pisses a lot of them off. Kelsey Grammer, he's in the original cast, but uh, his part got way cut down. He's pissed off about this. He's like, uh, excuse me, we're professionals here. I'd rather not play Zip Zap Zop. And what's your fucking problem? I don't uh, disagree. I, I Listen, I would uh, rather have a cup of coffee with James Lapine than I would with Kelsey Grammer. But uh, I would probably have the same thoughts. I, I can't stand that shit, to be honest with you. Theater games and exercises. I mean, James Lapine clearly knows what he's doing. But I, uh, anyway. Mandy Patinkin... He plays George. He's, you know, quite possibly the best musical theater performer ever, if you ask me. I idolized him in my youth. But he is apparently also an impossible piece of shit. And I was so curious about this because I always heard about the, you know, I, it wasn't uh, internet and podcasts back in my, my day. Uh, but he, I had heard that he, you know, stormed out a lot and he like quit the TV show Chicago Hope and everyone thought he was an asshole and so but I heard him on uh, Mark Marin WTF that podcast like when I saw it he was on there I was like oh my god this is amazing uh, I get to um, find out what's behind the Mandy Patinkin and yeah he seems like a 
real asshole and not in an interesting way. Just like he quits constantly. He quit uh, being on Criminal Minds, you know, more recently because uh, he said it was, quote, destructive to his soul and personality. And, um, you know, in, in this Lapine book, he's, like, he's, he's constantly quitting this. He's like, I can't do this, and fucking disappearing. And everyone's like, where the fuck did Mandy go? In the Mark Maron interview, he keeps saying, yeah, my, you know, hus my wife and my sons just knew that every once in a while I would get depressed and I would have to get on a plane and they would not know when I would be back. So these are children. Uh, oh, well, dad's gone and we'll just see him when we see him. And this is not like he's gone doing, uh, you know, whatever. He's Sunday in the Park with George, uh, the touring company. He's just down. He's blue. And he's like, I'd rather not be your dad for a few days. I'll, I'll be back later. And then when he comes back, he's like, hey, I feel better, everybody. And I'm like, yay. And uh, that sucks. I don't want to judge anyone's parenting, but I feel like a parent maybe shouldn't do that. He spent seven hours staring at the painting in Chicago during the rehearsal process. Here's a quote. I talked to it, and I listened to the people talking about it. I got up on a chair, and I looked to see the red and the blue and the hat, and I tried to see where the yellow flecks were so that I could create it on stage correctly. I also did the whole first act of the play in front of it, talking to the different people in the painting. I felt I was him, or his ghost. End quote. This is annoying to me when... Um, actors do this. I'm not really in show business, so it's not my place to say, but it's like, uh, did you see that documentary of Jim Carrey where he like left his body to become, or he let Andy Kaufman into his body and a whole thing about that? Read your lines and do your thing. It's the old Laurence Olivier talking to Dustin Hoffman where Dustin Hoffman's like, I starved myself for this role so that I could, and then Laurence Olivier says, my dear boy, why don't you just try acting? Mandy, just try, come on, man. You don't need to talk to the painting in the middle of a goddamn art gallery in Chicago. I, I, I hope somebody called security. Anyway, uh, musical theater acting. I, so, I think the musical theater acting, it's weird that it's like not as informed by formal acting techniques as regular acting is. Like uh, Meisner, Strasberg uh, stuff. And speaking of Meisner, Strasberg, like that's the whole thing. Like it's the thing, it's the, method acting versus just imagine what it might be like, right? And this is the Cliff's Notes on those. I have not studied any of those techniques at all. I just happen to know trivia about them. So, but when you're in a musical, I feel like I've worked with actors, and I'm not going to do my whole thing. Actors suck. Uh, but, like, I've worked with musical theater actors, and they get very grandiose about their process, but their process is a lot less formal than uh, straight play uh, theater people or um, whatever. It doesn't matter. Paul Gemignani, the uh, conductor, musical director, he had trouble hiring musicians for this because it was so fucking hard to play. Like, they'd come in and he'd look, they'd look at the sheet music and they'd be like, no, I, I can't hang with this. Go fuck yourself. So, um, on, they, 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 it's coming together piece by bit by bit, putting it together off Broadway in the, and they don't have the, it's the, it's just the first act for a long time. They add the second act later towards the end. And eventually they're going to mount it on Broadway. Now, I should tell you something. Between Off-Broadway and mounting it on Broadway, something happens. I am born in uh, November of 1983. Which doesn't necessarily matter, but uh, just, just know that. That was when I was born. And I feel like I had something to do with that. So, 
it doesn't do as well on Broadway as it is off Broadway. Uh, people are walking out. And Lapine, who's never, he's not a Broadway baby like Sondheim, he's like, why would anybody walk out of a play that they paid money for? And fair enough. I, just, I don't get that. It's a weird thing to do. Sondheim says, quote, For an audience, it's wonderful to be intrigued in the theater, but it's just awful to feel baffled. It's finding that line where everything isn't exactly explained, and yet it doesn't rouse hostility in the audience because they're confused. Like me in the movie uh, The Tree of Life. Or my poor, poor girlfriend Shailene the other night when we saw Bo is Afraid. I loved that movie so much. Everybody, please go see Bo is Afraid if you haven't seen it. It's highly upsetting for three hours, but goddammit, it's worth it. And it's, uh, I was so compelled, I didn't even want to uh, lose the 20 seconds when I sprinted to the restroom and back. So good. Bo is Afraid. Anyway, um, but uh, she was confused, and th th that's fine. Uh, I was confused. I, you know, some things confuse me, and people get confused. <laughs> Mandy Patinkin, the asshole, uh, the very talented asshole, Mandy Patinkin, says, quote, Many of us felt, let's just do the first act. On the other hand, when we talked about the second act, I would write essays to both Steve and Jim about what I thought was needed. And no one ever disagreed. Okay, Mandy. They, they may not have told you they disagreed, but why were you writing anybody any essays? Read your lines. Quote, the show was deteriorating as we went on, and I just couldn't deal with that. So I not only performed an incomplete second act, but I didn't feel I did a very good job in the first act because I didn't have the life. My spirit was dying. Mandy Patinkin's spirit was dying. Yeah, he's crazy, and not in an interesting way. This is obnoxious. And, um... So yeah, that Mark Marin interview with Mandy Patinkin, it was really, don't meet your heroes. And in fact, that podcast uh, in particular, I... I listened to it very early on, and I really, really loved it, and I still love it, but it, it kind of took a turn when Mark Maron became a working actor, because then he only wanted to talk to actors about acting, and it seems like every single one of them is just bound to disappoint you, because... a lot of times these actors are not are just empty vessels, like, they're going off of instinct, and... You know, you, you, you want them to be as layered and as interesting as the as the characters that they're playing, but a lot of times they're not. I don't know how, where they get it from. I don't know what kind of witchcraft it is that you can seem really smart or really uh, fascinating or interesting and then just be a complete dullard in an interview or an asshole. But it's a thing. We're a little off track here. It lost the Tony Award to La Caja Fall, and this is kind of a famous thing where uh, Jerry Herman, who wrote the music and lyrics to La Caja Fall, he gets up and he's accepting his award. Sondheim's sitting right there in the audience. He just lost the Tony, and, you know, and J Jerry Herman says, this award forever shatters a myth about the musical theater. There's been a rumor around for a couple of years that the simple, hummable show tune was no longer welcome on Broadway. Well, it's alive and well at the palace. So that's kind of a dick move. It's People made a big deal about it. I don't think Sondheim was that bothered by it. I mean, he doesn't give a shit about awards. And by the way, Sunday in the Park with George lost the Tony, but it won the fucking Pulitzer Prize. So fuck you, Tony Awards. Sondheim's won a lot of Tonys, but I think... Uh, I mean, that's a uh, shitty thing to say, but also... It has been historically debunked. Like, I challenge you to hum one song from La Caja Falls. 
I mean, I could maybe do that. I am or I am. I would argue that it's there are a lot more people. Like if you did an informal poll, if you had a large sample size, and you said, yeah, hum me a tune from La Caja Falls and hum me a tune from Sunday in the Park with George, I think it's going to be a lot more people going And that's why it's pointless for me to get so upset about people that like shitty things or people that like say that only hummable tunes matter because history, time wounds all heals. And heals all wounds. Like, uh, one of those has endured and one of those hasn't. And the one that was apparently hummable hasn't. So there you go. Sondheim wins. The unhummable tune wins. Let's talk about a few of the songs here. Um, the opening number, the title song, uh, Sunday in the Park with George. It's weird because, like, that song is very musical theater in a way that the rest of the show isn't. And it doesn't really set up the show to be... It, it, the show takes some turns from there. Like, this is like a little soliloquy. And she say, repeats, you know, Send in the mic with George! A few times. It's very uh, traditional. I mean, it, it, it gets weird. Her dress opens up and she walks out of it and she does the whole, I love your eyes, George. But it's got a, it ends with a bang. It's got the title right in it. And it kind of grounds the show and says, okay, this is a musical. It's going to get weird, but don't forget, this is a musical. This is not anything else. Then the song Color and Light, um, a little bit later, the third song. Like I said, it's the turning point of the show. It's the one event of the show, really, that it all revolves around. It's the, he has to finish the hat. Interestingly enough, because I came to a lot of this as a aspiring musical theater performer, and I, I really just wanted to sing along, like listening to it now, I realize there's some dot lines, like things that dot says in that counterpoint that I'd never heard before because I was singing the George parts to myself in the car, or not in the car, but like in my bedroom. Like, and you catch him here and there, but he's never really there. <clears throat> and sometimes in new territory on this song, and he says as much in Look, I Made a Hat. You know, he's using heightened language, which matches the dialogue. He's saying things like, oh, see, George, look, he could look forever. And, uh, you know, he will, will, will she be in the bed when the hat and the grass and the parasol have finally found their way? And it's, you know, it's different. It's, 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 it's not the way that he's worked before, where his uh, stuff before has been very conversational and written to character. But there's something transcendent happening in this. The song Children in Art is, I think it's, as, so Children in Art, the song Children in Art in the second act, I think that's as close as you're going to get to the answer to what is the meaning of life. I really think so. That's a, a bold statement, but yeah, Children in Art, that's the whole point. That's all that matters. And you don't even need to make the art or make the children, but you need some children and you need some art. There's a quote. I think I'm going to hold off on this quote for two reasons. One, because I did not <laughs> uh, transcribe, write it down here in my notes. But um, as we talked about before, Sondheim is very uh, into teaching. He feels that teaching is a sacred profession. He deeply regrets never having children of his own. But he says a thing about children's theater 
which I um, I used to read in the trainings that I ran at the company. I, I worked at a nonprofit as the theater department head, and I managed a staff of after-school theater teachers. And at my trainings, a couple of times, I started my trainings by reading this quote. And I'm going to read it to you, I think, probably in the Into the Woods episode, which is coming up next week, folks. Because um, there's a little teaser. Anyway, uh, it, it validated my choice of career at the time. And I... Uh, if you work with children on any, le any level, uh, hopefully it'll validate yours. The dog song in the first act, where George does the voice of the dogs, that was originally supposed to be used with a vocoder. Very, uh, new technology in the 80s, if you don't know what that is. It's, uh, the Daft Punk fucking around the world, around the world. You speak into a thing that changes your voice, uh, basically. There's a few examples of this, but Mandy Patinkin said, can I just do the voice of the fucking dogs? And then he did his, his Crazy Mandy thing. It gave him one opportunity to be Crazy Mandy uh, when he does the dogs. Finishing the hat. The song Finishing the Hat. If it's not my favorite song by Stephen Sondheim, it's in my top three. It's one of the few moments that he, uh, in his career that he identifies as autobiographical. I think it's the best song about making art or writing and it's something that as I've gotten older I relate to more and more it's trancing out when you're making art time passes while you're writing and you don't see it happen you don't remember it happen you kind of lose time the difference I think for me on a personal level than it is for Sondheim and maybe for others is that I hate that process I love what comes out of it I love the thing that I have birthed. God, that's grandiose. But like, I love the, the 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 fruits of it. But boy, the process of it, I can't stand. I I don't like it. It's I'm dizzy from the height in a way that does not feel good. It's a bad dizzy, to quote the song. Uh, returning to the night for me is uh, dizzy from the height is very hard. And it makes me it ruins the it, the, the the day is over. Like if I spend hours working on something. I am a uh, irritable, uh, I probably haven't eaten either, and so I'm like, uh, I'm a grumpy asshole, and uh, I, I have to quarantine myself from others when I'm writing, because the come down is painful, and the thing itself is painful. It feels like being a fucking drug addict, and that's what's so good, man, about Mandy Patinkin's performance, is because, like, Mandy Patinkin as George seems like a drug addict and he's like he's not enjoying this like he does not really necessarily like if he had a choice he probably doesn't want to finish the hat but he has to finish the hat and everything around him is crumbling and then he has this moment with this song oh my god <sighs> with finishing the hat where it's like everything was noisy and moving and then it's just like him alone with a dog and he shows the dog the the the, the, the oh my god Whew. he shows the dog the, the pad and says look I made a hat <sighs> putting it together um, Sondheim says something interesting about this about the rhyme scheme of this where uh, the shun like either three syllable or more, like a shun, ation, ishin. And if you want your retreat fruition, what you need to link with your tradition. Of course, a commission. Uh, there's a million of those in this song. 
I can't imagine how anyone ever memorizes this or, you know, can actually do it without fucking it up. But, um... He says that these songs are, like, easy to rhyme, but they're overused, and he avoids them. He says, quote, uh, I usually avoid this huge family of words because the effect invariably glitters with glibness. But I had dipped into it briefly in the interlude of the title song and now saw another justification for it, which is George's intellectual rationale for his own glibness as an artist. And, yeah, so this song is, like, really just sort of a very um, expanded expression of that old fucking cliche of, like, uh, oh, making something is 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. Or I don't know if it's 99 and 1. I don't know the numbers on that necessarily because I'm so bad at it. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the, so it's this is George number two talking about being on the grind. And for he's kind of forgetting the soul of what he's doing. And he's repeating himself. These chromalooms, these blazer shows have started to suck. And Sondheim, he he's, talks about how he shares in this anxiety because his career includes uh, shit like uh, in the early days of the backers' auditions and you got to raise the money and you got to plead for the opportunity to do what you want to do or the need to do it. I don't know how to fucking do that. And I've never really tried. Maybe if I tried, I would know how. But I don't ever try. I don't know why. It could be because of a lack of dopamine in my head. That's been suggested. My father died of Parkinson's disease, which is... Um, a lack of dopamine, so that's a bad sign. Who knows, man? I'm not a fucking doc. I'm not a neuro, neuro, a neuroscientist. You tell me. If you're a neuroscientist listening to this show, please send me a private email telling me whether or not I have Parkinson's disease, and whether the evidence of this is my low ambition to sell myself. There's a shitty show called Putting It Together, which I've talked about many times because I was in it uh, about 10 years ago, and it's a Sondheim anthology show. So those are bad. Sondheim's rewritten Putting It Together a few times. For uh, He wrote it for Barbara Streisand. <laughs> uh, she did a Back to Broadway, or not Back to Broadway, the first one, the Broadway album thing. Um, and he rewrote the lyrics to make it about the music industry. Every time I start to feel defensive, I remember vinyl is expensive. And he makes a... But, like, he completely overhauls it to make it not about visual art, but music. And then he also rewrote it uh, for the 1994 Oscars, I guess. Bernadette Peters sang it about making movies. By the way, you know, I'm not uh, a big Barbra Streisand fan or anything. But um, in this playlist that I made, I did include uh, her version of Everybody Says Don't from Anything Goes. Just because maybe it's the first one I heard. And I was disappointed by subsequent versions, uh, but it's very good. I gotta hand it to the old Barbara Streisand. The song "Move On." Um, it's a culmination of earlier songs, and it says something again that, like, I can't quite put my finger on, and I don't want to try. Um, but it completes what "We Do Not Belong Together" and "Color and Light" start earlier in the show, and it has something to do with George and Dot and art and life. And I think it's better left unsaid, at least for me. What does it mean to you? Why don't you not say that either? Anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new. Sondheim in the hat book, he says, uh, quote, These lines express something I firmly believe, but find it increasingly hard to act on. I use it as a supportive thought when I hit those low moments of taking on the fraudulence of what I'm writing, moments which occur with increasing frequency the older I get. It's a weak mantra, but one worth repeating as often as possible. So yeah, move on. It's simple, yet uh, not simple. And if you make things, it's good. 
Uh, I'm trying to linger on Move On, even though I have nothing more to say about it, because I don't want to talk about the song Sunday, because uh, it's the song Sun- Sunday is um, it's witchcraft. It, I don't know why it does what it does to me. And um, it's it's one it's the first time that he wrote a song that's like one long, incomplete sentence. And like I said, uh, I cried really hard when I heard this song or watched it on the video. And uh, I think that what it is is it's like so it's the moment that the you know of course it's the moment that the painting comes together and the painting is finished and you know we've seen the process of the painting being made and um, and it just like it was so it was so painful for him and there was so much at stake and and you know by the time he does this like he's alone like Dot has left and um yeah I can't I can't even fucking talk about it like I can't just to, like today I was listening I was listening to it today on campus on my way to class and uh I had to stop because it's it th- that song does something and the fact that they the word forever he talks about this he says um once during the writing of each show i cry at a notion a word a chord a melodic idea an accompaniment figure only once in each case curiously enough since i'm an easy crier at works of art particularly those made by others and he gives examples of his own work, like uh hold me and what's a little to be sure of uh, anything go- uh, not anything goes anyone can whistle um, the word home and the right girl from Follies, the last lines of someone in the tree from Sipka Overture. Oh, these are all curiously from shows I've skipped on this podcast. Um, uh, but the vamped, uh, our time and merrily we roll along, which also, uh, yeah. He says in this show, it was the word forever and Sunday. I was suddenly moved by the contemplation of what these people would have thought if they'd known they were being immortalized and in a major way in a great painting. I still cry when I think about it. I'm fucking, I, and I'm crying now. I, what the fuck? What the fuck? It's like, and they sang this song in Times Square uh, when he died. And that line forever. I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful song. It's a really beautiful show. And I feel like cutting this whole podcast down or not releasing this podcast at all because, like I said, it's not worth talking about because it's power is unnameable. <laughs> ah, fuck. All right. So uh, th- this is going to conclude our episode about Sunday in the Park with George. Um I don't have any final thoughts. I feel like I said too much already. I feel like this podcast is redundant in the first place. And yeah. Give it a listen. Sunday in the Park with George. Maybe if you haven't seen it or heard it in a while. Maybe uh, give it a listen. I guess I didn't talk about Jake Gyllenhaal. He did this a few years ago. Uh, and they released a video of him singing Finishing the Hat, which I thought was pretty good. I was pleasantly surprised by. 
So, um, so yeah. Next week, folks. So we have two episodes left in this, let's call it a season. I'm going to talk about Into the Woods, and then I'm going to talk about Assassins, and then I'm going to stop for a while. And figure out what I want to do, if, if I want to do anything at all, or if I want to uh, move on with my life. Because whatever the impulse, the artistic uh, satiation that I require, like whatever that is, it's kind of getting, that itch is getting scratched by doing this podcast. And it's starting to worry me, because I'm not doing anything else. I have an album that I want to finish, and I have a musical that I want to do a new draft of. But every time I have time, or like any, whenever I have time that's not working or at school or spending quality time with my partner or family I tend to just do this (laughs) do informal sloppy research of Sondheim shows and then talk about it into a mic and I think I need to take a short break from that so that I can get back to Alexi, Mark, call me a hypocrite but I need to finish my own film I quit that's from Rent So I need to uh, do that for a while. But the next two should be good because those are two great shows. Into the Woods. Assassins. I was briefly considering, like, what if I... What if in the second season of this show I uh, had guests? Uh, I don't have any cachet to have any, like, guest guests. But what if I... I thought, like, what if I go with my theme of not talking to theater people and, like, I talk to, like, a a visual artist that hates musicals about Sunday in the Park with George and I force them to watch it and then talk to them about it. Or I talk to a a horror movie buff about, about Sweeney Todd, force them to watch that. Like, only people, like, people that are not famous on any level, but, uh work in the mediums that are addressed by these shows and maybe I can uh, continue my lifelong uh, fruitless project of trying to get people to love musicals by making them see Sondheim ones or I can yell at them for not liking them what do you think of that idea give us a call 1-800 I'm gonna end this fucking podcast with uh, a Sondheim quote about goodbye um I'm not even going to look it up. I'm going to pause it, and I'm going to just think of one. All right. Well, here's one. Uh, Although I'll think of you, I guess, until the day I die. I guess I'll miss you less and less as every day goes by. Podcast audience. Farewell, podcast audience. Another bright red day. Shit. We learned podcast audience to say goodbye. That was really fucking weak, and I, you, you, I, I'd hate to tell you how much time it took me to even pick that one. And based on the way it turned out, let's cut our losses here, baby. Let's end this show. Uh, so many possibilities, like the blank pager canvas, uh, squandered. Anyway, enjoy the rest of your day. I'll let you know how uh, a little night music at the Pasadena Playhouse turns out. Or I won't. Anyway, bye.